Thank you, Ruth. Can everybody hear me? Is that coming through? There we go. Well, good morning, everybody. How are we all doing? We're good. We're enjoying the sun. The whole 19 degrees. It's not 23. Uh, it's good. I'm enjoying this one. I'm enjoying this kind of this microphone here. I, yesterday, I was practicing with Naomi's hairbrush, so it's nice. I've got my hands. I can do whatever I want. Um, so this morning, we're kind of beginning this this summer series of voices within the church. And I suppose I would be a relatively new voice. Um, myself, Naomi, and our son George, we've been here for about eight months now. Um, but I know that I don't know many of you. Um, I'm going to blame that solely on George. <laughs> Trying to hold a hungry toddler at the end of a service isn't the best sociable time for us. Um, but one thing that has helped in the last couple of weeks is our table group. So just again, just to plug, if you are new, if you want to get to know people within this community, then I would highly recommend um, speaking to those people uh, and joining a table group. So myself, I work as a script reader for the organization SASRA. Can I ask, put your hand up if that made any sense to you at all? Oh, there's a few. Only because I've told you. Yeah. <laughs> so a script reader for the organization SASRA. Um, it's a weird thing. Uh, essentially, I am a, a civilian chaplain working within the military uh, and pr providing spiritual support for, for soldiers and their families. Um, I've been doing that for the last kind of year now, and I'm, I'm stationed in Belfast um, and here for another year at least, but hope to extend that as long as we possibly can. Um, so that's, that's me. Uh, so before we open our Bibles, this morning I've titled this talk Friends of Jesus. It's there, the slides came through um, this morning. Uh, so it's titled the, the Friends of Jesus. But before we get into that, I want to ask you a quick question. And that is, have you ever felt out of place? Think of a time where you've felt maybe repeatedly, I, I do not belong here. I am not going to pass as getting along here, whether that's in work, uh, at a party with friends. Do you ever feel that you just that someone's going to catch me out? They're going to know that I shouldn't be here. I'll give you two examples for myself. And firstly, for me, is any posh restaurant. Uh, and when I say posh, really, I mean kind of Nando's and above. Um, and it's because Naomi will kind of confirm with you, but I have the palate of a nine-year-old 90s council kid. Um, and I was one. I, and I, I grew up on corned beef hash, turkey Twizzlers, Spam, um, all things I still eat now and love. Um, so, so whenever I'm in a posh restaurant, I'm nervous. I am on edge. And I think it's because I, I kind of grew up on a council estate. We come from a small town. I've got two brothers. Uh, we moved to this town. We were maybe 12 years old. Um, and there was a couple of different council estates, but there was one you didn't want to be from because they got a lot of grief, and it was called Potley. Um, and if you lived in Potley, fortunately that's where we moved to, you were given this nickname, not by just kind of school friends, but this was throughout the whole town. You were called a Potleyite. And if you were a Potleyite, essentially it means you, you were just a bit scummy. And it was a way for the whole town to refer to someone. Someone's gone missing, oh, the Potleyites. And it was, it was just that name that kind of stuck. You right, George? Uh, it was just that, that name that kind of stuck with you. 
<laughs> so with this name of Apotlii, it kind of it was there throughout my childhood. Um, it could have been much worse. I have an older brother, unfortunately, his glasses. Uh, his name throughout school and still now in our hometown with his friends was Harry Potley. Um, so he, he really didn't do well out of it. Um, but I still have that, that fear of kind of 18 years I moved out of this place, but I still, if you put me in a posh restaurant or a posh setting, I'll be on edge, I'll be sweaty, I'll be looking through the menu trying to find chips, or I'll be looking at the kids' options, because I just, I'm on edge, and I don't like it. And it's, some of that's kind of stuck with me in the back of my mind. But I suppose a more, a more personal example would be to simply say, here within the church. I became a Christian when I was 13, uh, from a non-church-going family, and then my family go to church. Uh, I've always had that feeling in the back of my mind that, oh, I'm going to get caught out. I shouldn't be here. People are going to see my sin, my failings, and obviously they're not going to want me here, especially speaking from the front. And I think it's because I moved around a lot and didn't really have that kind of family name, that kind of family backing, which a lot of people do, especially in Northern Ireland, where the majority of you are related in some way or another. You all know each other's second names. You, you all know where you're from, Dungannon, da 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 and you all say it, and you've all gone to school, and, and the like. But um, for me, I was always kind of that, that visiting guy. I moved around a lot, so I, I went to different churches, and I never had that kind of backing, and it always kind of stuck with me, that, that feeling of I don't quite fit in here, I'm going to get caught out. And luckily, I think in the last couple of years, that's, that's gotten a lot better. Um, but I do remember a couple of years ago, I was, I was studying at Belfast Bible College. Um, and on the first week, we were doing these introductions, and I was surrounded by all these kind of priests and pastors and youth workers and worship leaders, all these people that, that know Belfast, know every church, they all knew each other. Uh, and then there was me, so we were doing these introductions, we just to say where we're from and what we do. So all of them gone around and said they do these lovely jobs in churches and stuff. And uh, I said, where are you from? I said, England. I was the only one. Um, and then... Secondly, he said, what do you do? And at the time, I was working nights at the SSC Arena, pulling pints and trying to stop middle-aged women fighting at Westlife concerts. <laughs> and that, that's, that's what I was doing. So I immediately kind of went back to that. I should not be here. Um, nobody was rushing to work with me in those first few weeks in our group projects over the two years as well, to be honest. But, um, but it's something that, that it's just in the back of my mind at times. But I think this idea this idea of I don't quite fit in is, is universal. I think within our society today, and especially within the church, and even in the very first church, this isn't just a, a now problem, but those feelings of I'm not good enough to be around these people, we see it, we see it, that, that maybe Jesus doesn't want me to be his friend. It's always been there, and it's it's evident, we see it, especially in the New Testament, we see it in Acts, in most of, if not all of Paul's letters, we see people struggling to accept themselves as loved friends of Jesus. But like I said this morning, I want us to look at the friends of Jesus and perhaps re-examine where we fit in with that. So if you've got your Bibles or apps or whatever, or hopefully look at the screen, we're going to read from Luke 15, 1 to 7. There it is. So now the tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. 
So Jesus told him this story. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go and search for the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. When he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. Now, before we look at what Luke has written and what Jesus is saying, it's important to understand that context is, is everything within this story. In this passage, which is all about food, sinners, wrongful judgment, and the company that Jesus keeps, it's worth to note that this passage follows directly after another parable in chapter 14 where Jesus shares about the great banquet in which the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind replace the anticipated wealthy and respected guests. So this isn't just a little parable, a little story, a short seven verses without a bigger picture meaning. In fact, this idea of Jesus' company, his friends, and who he associates himself with, we see all throughout Luke. Luke makes Jesus' companionship with the sinners a special point of emphasis. Like Mark and Matthew, Luke tells the story of Levi and the debate concerning Jesus' table fellowship with tax collectors. But Luke alone provides much more detail and more stories of Jesus' interaction with those around him, even as Jesus was on the cross. We actually see four times throughout Luke, Luke reports on meals in which Jesus receives criticism for his relationship with sinners. But in all of these instances, Jesus never once comments on the sinner's behavior, especially to the response that he's, uh, the criticism that he's receiving. We see that in chapter 5, chapter 7, here in 15, and again in 19. So we break down this parable. We break down, if we look at verses 1 and 2, firstly, we need to really understand that Luke is trying to set the current scene laying out the context for us to understand what Jesus is about to say in response, again, to the criticism that he's received. We're introduced to four kind of main characters. We have the the tax collectors and the notorious sinners, and also the Pharisees and other religious leaders. Now, for us to really understand these characters, it it gets a bit tricky. And that's because I think, naturally, we interpret the Bible now differently to how Luke wrote this passage here. Let me explain. When we read sinners, I think we often think, if you're a Christian here in the room this morning, we often can think, well, aren't we all sinners? Don't we all fall short? We, kind of, we can skim over the, the meaning of it. We kind of, we kind of make our own summaries. And we say these things, so is there really a difference between the two? And you are correct to an extent, but that idea and that belief that we often use, that we're all sinners, we all fall short, that belief and understanding hadn't been shared yet. So Luke here is definitely identifying two very different types of people, and it's important that we understand that. So when we read notorious sinners and tax collectors, we need to grasp that these people people were shunned, they were despised, they were thieves, pimps, sex workers, criminals, even murderers. These were the people that the Pharisees and religious leaders wouldn't dare go near because they were afraid to be seen with them. 
They were afraid that they would become unclean and corrupted even if they engaged with them in any way at all. And just like the notorious sinners, the tax collectors were also shunned and despised by the Jewish community. These were people who were supporting and working for the kind of Roman conquering empire, so against their own people, and at the same time, stealing from them, taking their property, taking their money, and making themselves rich in the process. So these people were definitely despised by the people that they were a part of. So there is a difference. And I say that just for us to read it from the same perspective that it's written in, in the way Jesus tells it. That, it's, that that kind of, we all fall short, we're all sinners, doesn't really quite apply. Does that make sense? There's a distinguishable difference between our logic now and how we read it and how it was written then. So I think in, in order to understand the parable, we need to kind of grasp that a little bit um, and maybe just change the, the lens in which we kind of understand that. Does that make sense? Good. So that's the, the tax collectors and the sinners. Now, the religious leaders and the Pharisees, arguably, you could say, we kind of do the same thing a little bit. Um, as we read the Gospels, when we often come across uh, these characters, I think naturally, if you've read the Bible a little bit, you'll think, oh, there's the villains. They're the bad ones. They're the baddies. I know that. But I think to understand, again, the significance of these characters within this story, we need to, we need to be aware that in the Greco-Roman world, these people were very different. They were respected. They were well-educated, well-informed. We have to remember only maybe 15 to 20% of, of men could read and write at this time, and less than 5% for women. These men knew ancient religious law and were so focused on who Jesus was and what he was doing. They became blinded to it all. I read that the best understanding of them was that here was a group of men who knew and taught a lot about God, but they did not love God. So we have two very different groups of people throughout this story. And now then, for the third time throughout Luke, so far, we see these religious leaders and Pharisees are complaining, in other translations it says groaning, to Jesus about who he is meeting with and who he is eating with. Now, some of us may think, oh, sure, he grabbed a bit of lunch with these people. It's not that bad. But eating and, and meals, it was a huge thing. Within the culture, to eat with someone was, was a massive deal. To have a meal with someone was to accept hospitality, was to bestow honor on those serving you. It was a deep and meaningful thing. It wasn't like saying after church, Johnny, let's go pop over and get a KFC. It, wasn't, it was so much more than that. It was a big deal, and by Jesus sitting with, gathering with, eating with these people, who the rest of society considered they were dirty, they were not worth his time, this statement by Jesus was very much against the religious culture and societal culture of the time. But he knew what he was doing. When Jesus embraced these people as friends, we don't read of him objecting to their behavior, nor did he make their friendships conditional. Instead, he simply had no judgments on them for who they were. Any labels that were associated with these people, he didn't care about. Poor, criminal, widowed, thief, sex worker. Jesus, throughout these intimate and honoring meals, doesn't talk about those issues with his friends. Instead, he tells the story of God's love for each of us and the joy that that relationship brings to God when we are found. And that is what we see in this parable, God's joy for every individual friend of Jesus. 
So we look then at verse 4 to 7. This is where we read the story. And we see we read of the 99 and the one sheep and how surely a shepherd would leave the 99 to go and search for the one and then rejoice, have a party in an extreme manner, carry the sheep on his shoulders, come down and tell everybody, I found the lost sheep. I'm paraphrasing. Um, but that's what he does. He, he has this massive, this massive celebration, this massive joy. And he's in, in partying essentially with his, with his neighbors on his return. Now, it's often in a parable that there is a hook, uh, a moment where we realize this story doesn't necessarily make much sense. Um, parables themselves are often referred to as kingdom stories, where we see Jesus sharing the ways and the will of God through tales in which we can understand sometimes, the majority of the time. Uh, and this is a proper kingdom story, a story which reflects the radical nature of God's love for each and every one of us. But in verse 6, we do have those questions ourselves. I think we say, well, who in their right mind would leave 99 sheep to go and search for the one, especially after putting the 99 at risk? These, the shepherd isn't leaving them in a lovely little stable, an electric fence field. It says specifically they're in the wilderness. They're left in the wilderness all while the shepherd leaves in search for the one. Now, as I said Throughout his ministry, Jesus has introduced us to many parables and kingdom stories as a place of kind of upside-down rules where ordinary rules don't really apply and logic is out the window. And for here, we see the loss of one sheep breaks the shepherd's heart. So the shepherd searches until he finds the sheep. So then we see, having expressed this kind of logic-defying, law-defying, common-sense-defying response of sheer joy at finding the one sheep, Jesus then tells the Pharisees and the religious leaders the hard-hitting truth. It says in verse 7, I tell you that even so there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. And there are two amazing points I think we can draw from this verse. Firstly, and that is that we need to recapture and or accept the joy that comes from God when we come close to him. So again, we need to recapture and or accept the joy that comes from God when we draw close to him. We need to accept that righteous joy, that undeserved, logic-defying love that God has for, has for each and every one of us, just like the shepherd has for the one sheep. And secondly, we're missing out unless we bring everything we have to God. Don't be like the 99. Don't live for yourselves. Instead, come and bring everything you have, everything we have, the good and the bad, to God. Now, I asked you that question at the start of when do you feel out of place? And as we look at, as, at the friends of Jesus, who he embraced, who he loved exactly for who they were, I think this parable and what Jesus is saying can be summed up in three ways. Firstly, is that Jesus loves you for you. And you, George. Jesus loves you for you. You don't have to fit in. You don't have to pretend to be something else. You don't have to feel uncomfortable. Your place is here. Your place is at his side. Don't think others are better than you. Don't worry about not being like every other kind of middle-class Northern Irish Christian. Don't worry about comparison. It's pointless. It's absolutely pointless. 
And it is not what God wants for you or for us. God wants you to be exactly the way you are. God needs you to be exactly who you are. When it comes to sharing Jesus, the best people to do that in your circumstances isn't bringing Dave, Dan, or Steph. I mean, you couldn't because none of them are here. Um, But it isn't bringing those people into your workplace or into your family life and Dave getting the guitar out. That's not going to have the same impact as you. The best person to share Jesus in your circumstances is you, your successes, your tragedies, your failures, your wins, your losses. They make you you. And you might not think that they're good enough for God, but he can use every bit of our lives to share his name. Now that idea, that kind of statement, I've, I think, if I'm honest, I've struggled with over the last year. Um, after George's birth and diagnosis, uh, it was a struggle. Those, those kind of, you had these questions. And, but it was last week, I had a, a female soldier. She came into my office at the end of the day on a Friday. Um, I'd never met before. And she just started sharing straight away. She didn't know who I was. She didn't know I would be there. She just kind of came up on a win because she saw the word Padre written on the wall. Um, and she shared with me a lot of personal hardships that she'd gone through in her life um, and a lot recently. And she was asking those big questions of, of where is God in this, and why me? Questions that, that I've had in my mind a lot over the last, uh, the last year. Um, and she was asking these questions, and like I said, she was a Christian, and she was just, she was clinging on. She was really just clinging on. Now, I, I didn't have any saving, amazing, problem-solving answers for her. Um, But I understood the the questions that she was asking. I understood those more now than perhaps I did before. So I I was able to sit there and really just hear her story and understand my role in supporting her. I, I, I heard her differently. And that is God using every bit of our lives in different ways, because he does. And it's a, it's a reason, in a way, it's, we look at it as sometimes we think our tragedies are, are bad things that God can't use those. How can God use that? And we have that, those feelings of, I'm not good enough, I don't deserve to be here, and they're like, but we can use every, God uses everything. God can use anything, all for his good. And, and there's, a, there's a rejoicing in that. There's a, a celebration in that. And that brings me to my, my second point, is that Jesus, sorry, God will always rejoice on your return. No matter how far you go, when you turn to God and say his name, there is rejoicing in heaven because he loves you. The next time you read this story, and it's often as we read parables, sometimes, if we're honest, we do skim over them a little bit. We're like, oh yeah, I know the 99, the one he goes, he comes back. But if you read, I want you to really read, the next time you come across this, read verse six, uh, and when Jesus describes the joy at how much that one means to the shepherd, that is exactly what you mean to God. And don't be fooled by anything other than that. You mean so much to God. And finally, I don't think I'd be doing this passage kind of justly if I didn't share on the message for the 99. Just like how we can identify as the one, we can also be the 99. I think in our Christian lives, at times we can become stagnant. We can become out of sync of what it is God is doing around us and what it is God is doing for us. We all have moments where, if we're honest, we can get a little bit big-headed 
And whether that's in our church life, again, family life, work life, you've been promoted, everything's going well, you've just bought a house, blah, 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 the list goes on. But if we're not, all, if we're not bringing all of those things to God, then, then what good is it? If it's all not coming back to God, who's it for? So sometimes we need to check ourselves and we need to come down from those kind of self-built towers that we have. We need to step out of our kind of comfort zones and be vulnerable. We need to be vulnerable with ourselves, but more importantly, we need to be vulnerable with God. And this is a message for myself as, as, as for anybody. But we need to stay away from being, from being proud, from being self-sufficient like the 99, but we need to bring everything, all that we have, the wins, the failures, the weaknesses, if we bring it to God. It's our weaknesses that make us stronger in Christ. And I, like I said, I regularly need to hear this. It's easy to get caught up in the world and be like the 99, but we need to, we need to call it out uh, amongst ourselves and we need to come back to Christ in all that we do. So as I, I start to kind of wrap up now, um, one question for you again is just which one do you feel like this morning? Do you feel like the 99 or do you feel like the one? There isn't a correct answer. I honestly don't think there is. Um, I think at different points in our life will relate to both. I think some of you may always feel like the one, the outsider, like you're not good enough and you don't belong. But for others, it might just be moments of different seasons in your life where you feel like this. And similarly, at times, you'll feel like the 99. Either way, this parable, this kingdom story, and what Jesus says here affects us all. Without God at our core, we're lost. And when we're lost, it is easy to become disillusioned into thinking that we don't belong here, that we're not good enough for Christ, that Jesus wouldn't want to be my friend. Why would he want me? And this is the biggest lie that we tell ourselves. I'm going to say that again. Without God at our core, we're lost. And when we're lost, we become easily delusioned into thinking that we don't belong here that Jesus wouldn't be my friend. And this is the biggest lie that we tell ourselves. I'm going to ask the band if they want to come up now. Um, and we're going to pray in a minute. But I really kind of want to finish just to, to encourage you that if you've felt out of place, if you've ever felt that, that I'm not good enough, that he doesn't want me the way I am, how can I be a friend of Jesus? I don't think it fit in amongst other Christians. This idea and this thought is, I'll just say, it's rubbish. It's not true. Um, I've said it already multiple times, and I'll say it again, but you are loved and designed and needed to be you exactly the way you are. And if you have those moments where you're struggling, if you have those moments where you think, oh, I, I don't fit in here, not like a posh restaurant, but in a, in, a, in a church setting, within the church, within a community, I want you to go back and read verse 6 and know that, that you are so loved and there is rejoicing, there is a party going on when you come close to God. And we don't have to be like everybody else. Can I ask, can you stand if that's all right? And I'm going to pray and I'm going to hand over to Ruth. So I'm going to pray. I just want to pray for a few things and just that if, if, if any of this 
has made sense to you today, or if you feel like uh, that is what I'm feeling at the minute, then please come and, 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 and talk to me afterwards. I'd love to pray for you at the side. But, but right now, I just want to pray for us all that, that, that we remember that joy that God has for each and every one of us, no matter where we are in our walk with God. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you for who you are. I thank you that you rejoice for us as we rejoice for you. I thank you that our relationship with you means so much. And I thank you for everyone in this room, that they are different, that they are their own person, that you know them every part of their lives, Lord, and you love them for that. You've designed them to be who you want them to be. And I just pray for us, Lord, this week that you would encourage us, that we would feel that rejoicing, that, that undeserved amazing joy that there is that you have for us, that we would feel that on our hearts from you, that you would guide us, Lord, in that, that you would help us come to terms with that, Lord, that we are different, but we are friends of Jesus. God, we just pray these things in your name. Amen.